Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size, the only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your host, Wildcard Cameron. I'm committing this time. Ooh, all right. We're going to try it until someone says something. All right, Wildcard Cameron. I see you. Can't, you see me? I'm sorry. I can't help but laugh. <laughs> okay, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're going we're gonna to see where this goes. Okay. All right. What's the news looking like this week? Ooh, that's fun. Although, that's funny. That undermines the story a little bit because this is a story I'm bringing up that's from kind of a while ago. <laughs> but I think it's still important and it's still important that we discuss because it's about public health stuff. All right. Let me try that again. What's the news this year? That's not coronavirus. <laughs> All right. That's pretty good. So today we're really just going to be discussing a popular public health strategy, which is putting restrictions on the sale of products that can be dangerous to someone's health. So you probably know like the sale of cigarettes and tobacco that and has a vapes. lot of restrictions. Yes. Vaping has restrictions. Even the sale of alcohol has restrictions. But what we're really going to get into now is more of soda and junk food. Does the federal government come for my Cheetos? Because I want my Cheetos. <laughs> I don't know why Cheetos is like the default snack I always bring up on the show. <laughs> Cheetos are good. They're really good. The crunchy ones are the best. Although that one time I left the one cheese puff out too long and it became a president. Oh, my gosh. You're never going to let go of that joke. No. They don't even know what that joke is, but they'll find out. They'll piece it together <laughs> over the course of this whole show. All right. So who's doing the taxing this time? It's actually not taxing, and that's the interesting part. Okay. I feel like there are a lot of pieces. Where is this happening? All right. Let's get to the actual story. This happened on August 5th in Oaxaca, Mexico. They approved a new law banning the sale of junk food and sugary drinks to children under the age of 18. And the law imposes fines and possible jail time to anyone other than parents who provide unhealthy packaged food to minors. And this law pretty much puts junk food in the same category as like alcohol and cigarettes. And it's actually gained support from multiple parties and areas across Mexico. And there have been some federal legislators that are proposing a bill that would ban the sale and marketing of junk food to children throughout all of Mexico. Yeah. As I understand, Mexico has a pretty high obesity rate specifically because they are basically just such an unregulated space for junk food. That's actually a perfect segue to what I was going to mention. You know, what's the reason for this rule? Because it seems kind of extreme on the surface, right? Banning the sale of junk food to minors. But the big reason for that is because Mexico is number one in childhood obesity and number two in adult obesity worldwide. And that means a third of Mexican children are overweight or obese. Wait, is this like the U.S. in the 90s? Just like any junk food company can throw blue onto their food and suddenly it's a different food and every kid's going to have to go eat it? <laughs> there are multiple reasons for it. It it really comes into like the availability of junk food and a change in like living circumstances. But just to get into a little bit of obesity and why these rates are kind of troublesome, it's just because – Obesity, it's a precursor to a lot of diseases, including heart conditions, hypertension or high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, some cancers, and sleep apnea. And obesity in children, it's been directly associated with high blood pressure and can affect, like, children's growth and development. So 
this can all be really burdensome for governments, you know, because if you have something in the population that's making them sick, then that could lead to high health care costs and could lead to, you know, negative economic outcomes. Yeah. Also, just the fact that this will put a lasting ongoing strain on the medical infrastructure of your country. Yeah, exactly. And so as we've kind of been mentioning, well, a big reason why there's this huge obesity problem happening in Mexico, it's because there's been a large amount of people moving from rural areas to urban city centers. And in these cities, there's greater access to junk food and less access to safe outdoor spaces, leading to less physical activity and a more sedentary lifestyle. So you have this thing happening in cities where you just have an overabundance of junk food available. And also there's just a limited availability of like fresh fruits and vegetables and like healthy alternatives. Yeah. And part of the problem there is just a lot of Mexico's economy comes from exporting a lot of that to the U.S. Yeah. Like a lot of the good, healthy, natural resources of Mexico get exported to the U.S. by companies that are usually based in the U.S. I know the Coca-Cola Corporation, they are big time Mexico. Like they sell a lot there. Like basically in the school system, you're more likely to have a kid with access to Coca-Cola than water. Yeah. And that's and I, I want to just take a moment to say like nothing about this is saying that Mexicans are not doing a good job taking care of their own health or trying to be healthy as a product of like Mexico or being Mexican. We're saying that a lot of confounding factors that are also a problem in other countries are being a problem in Mexico. Mexico is taking a very novel way to handle it, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. That hit the nail on the head because – I can just read through kind of some of these things that research has done that kind of links it back to obesity in Mexico. But this is not exclusive to Mexico. This is not something that's like, oh, this is something special that's happening in this country or in their culture or something. No, nah, this is something that's happening like in all developing countries. It's just amplified in this one area because of the this high availability of junk food. So let me get into some of these things that's been linked to obesity through research. Parental time constraints. I've kind of mentioned like families being too busy to, you know, prepare or shop for healthy foods. You know, something that is big in the U.S. also of like if you're having to run to multiple jobs, if you're going on this, if you're having to get to school early, like if you're going to grab the thing that's already prepared. You're not going to have time to make like this really healthy home cooked meal. Having like food being like the center of the family and like having a dedicated all eating together, even being like a reward system for food. That's, again, not exclusive to Mexican culture. That's everywhere. Also, lack of knowledge regarding nutrition. That's also been associated with it. Again, that's pretty self-explanatory, and I think everyone fall under that category. And here are the big two things. Lack of safe public spaces for physical activity. So not only can it be difficult to find public spaces in cities to, like, run around, play, and exercise, but also a lot of families just don't feel safe letting their children play in these spaces. So that leads to... You know, children mainly staying indoors and watching TV or playing on the computer, et cetera. Yeah. And this is just a problem all over the world. Yeah. But there are two countries connected to each other, one of which is Mexico, that really are seeing a lot of this problem for reasons I'm sure you're going to get into in this episode. Yeah. And then 
Going back to high availability of unhealthy food, Mexico is the largest consumer of ultra-processed foods in Latin America, and that includes soda and sugary drinks. So you have a lack of access to fresh and healthy foods and aggressive marketing of junk food to minors happening in that area and high exposure of junk food in homes, schools and cities. That's all contributed to this environment that leads to this rise in obesity rates. So in order to counter it, they're making it legal to sell that food to minors or anyone under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And also, does this extend to fast food or is it just junk food? It's mainly just junk food, but I don't know how fast food works <laughs> that much in Mexico. The other thing I want to know is like when they say junk food, they can find weird loopholes and ways of saying, well, this isn't junk food because it has fruit jelly or something in it. And so like are there categories of food that are excluded from this that we might otherwise think of as junk food? And I mean, there may be. I couldn't I didn't actually find the like full written law out. I've mainly just found articles talking about it. So I don't know all the minutia of it. And there could very well be, you know, loopholes and stuff being like, oh, this has a somewhat healthy ingredient. So is that junk food? Is that not junk food? I think the main importance is that it's an actual step into limiting what children can buy in terms of unhealthy foods. OK, where do we go from here? I mean, I kind of brought up that these problems are not exclusive to Mexico. For example, the U.S. has a lot of these same issues. OK, the main thing being like overabundance of junk food and not as much access to fresh fruit and vegetables and also big problem in cities. So like food deserts in the U.S. are a huge problem. All right. Kind of everything I described, which like they're areas that have limited access to stores that sell fresh and healthy foods. Yeah, we actually have lots of problems where a large company like Walmart will come in and kind of run the smaller grocers and stuff out of business and then decide that they don't want to stick around. And suddenly you're only left with like the Dollar General and whatnot for your actual produce because all the small grocers who were there before got run out of business and there's no longer a supply chain to get healthy food into that area. Oh, yeah, exactly. And like from the USDA, like really the definition of this is an area that has either a high poverty rate or a low median family income where a significant portion of the population lives more than a mile from the nearest supermarket or grocery store in an urban area or more than 10 miles away from one in rural areas. And as of 2015, an estimated 39 million people or 12.8 percent of the U.S. population lived in these areas. Think of that. 12.8 percent of the U.S. population was either like a mile or 10 miles away from the nearest grocery store. That's obviously going to affect food choices. Yeah. And we've also obviously seen racial disparities in terms of how food deserts impact certain demographics in the United States based on where they live, what kind of economic value their community is seen mm -hmm. as bringing, and the just general problem that when you're doing all this, the economic status of the people you're more or less selling to can have a large influence over what kind of services and products you decide to offer them. Yeah. And a big thing when you talk about like healthy foods, natural foods, fresh foods in the U.S., those things are really in like rich communities. Mm -hmm. Like you have, you know, those fancy grocery stores that sell all the organic foods and all that. That's usually in the rich part of town. That's not in the lower income areas. And also because that stuff, they just market for a higher price usually. And so, yeah, there's huge like disparity between, you know, low income areas and high income areas of what's actually available to them when it comes to healthy foods. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you're about to tell me all the ways we're going to try and curtail that ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> well, in terms of food deserts, I mean, people have they've created programs where like starting community gardens in areas. Mm -hmm. That's a huge movement that some public health organizations have done so that you have these communities could be growing fresh fruit and vegetables themselves. And then that will be available to everyone in the community to have to promote healthiness. And, you know, we could go into other things besides the banning of junk food that other countries have done. Like, I think that would be a perfect time to talk about that now. Yeah. Yeah. So other countries besides Mexico have done things. And the popular one has been soda taxes. I'm sure everyone has heard a story or two about soda taxes, which is usually like you have two different kinds of ways that areas will do this. Either they'll put a tax on the volume of soda. So let's say like a big gulp from 7-Eleven is going to have a higher tax on it than like the tiny version. I forget what the tiny version's called. Was it like a I don't. A little gulp? Get, I don't know. I don't get soft drinks from, I don't get <laughs> fountain drinks from 7-Eleven. I'm sorry. I get mine from a bottle, from oh, a refrigerator, okay. like a man. Yeah. So you have that kind of tax, which is volume-based. And other areas have actually done where it's sugar content-based, where it's the more sugar content is in like a soda or drink or even tea, I think. Like that's how the tax will be done. So, like, they would tax regular soda but not diet sodas? Kind of, yeah. I think it also applies to artificial sweeteners. Okay. That's interesting. I, I mean, there's a lot of science around how just the amount of sugar in food has completely messed with how our taste buds taste in normal food that mm -hmm. doesn't have added sugars. And so I could see why you'd want to also enforce this against artificial sweeteners because it still causes our brains to have the same association with sweetness even though it's not actually receiving any sugar. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, I would have to actually like specifically look that up on those taxes. But from what I was casually reading, I think it also applied to artificial sweeteners in those cases. This also sounds like a fun segue into a new segment I'm adding exactly for only this episode, maybe future episodes, <gasps> called Cameron's Tax Corner. Ooh, tell this, me more. This is a good use of taxes. This is something that I actually get really annoyed about. I like economics a lot. I'm not an economist, I'll tell you that up front. But... <laughs> I like understanding the economy because it informs a lot of why and how the things we in, interact with every day are there. And one of the most annoying things about the economy is how wrong a lot of governments, especially our government, get taxes. Because normally when you think of taxes, you usually actually think of like tariffs, which is like we tax other people's stuff coming in. But that doesn't actually hurt them so much because we live in a global economy. So they can kind of trade with whoever they want. And the taxes really only end up hurting American consumers. But what's really nice to see here is the goal of taxes is to – and it's weird because don't think of income tax for this. I could do a whole other episode about why <laughs> income tax is weird but necessary. This is more like a sales tax. Yeah. This is a focus on why you want to tax things like cigarettes and soft drinks is because you have a specific thing that you want to discourage. And so a good way to discourage it is to make it more expensive. You're looking at it and saying, oh, the economic alternative to soft drinks might be water mm -hmm. or some ideally something healthier than a soft drink, at which point you would be more likely to invest in that. But it's also saying you can still have it. Like Americans love their freedom. So we still have the freedom to buy a big gulp, even if it's more expensive. But now 
a chunk of that money can be taken. Although I know for a fact in the U.S. it probably isn't. But <laughs> if you're in any of these other countries that have these taxes, a chunk of that money can now be taken and put towards social programs that help people with obesity or towards helping people who are suffering from some sort of medical addition that might be related to obesity. Yeah, I was going to mention that. At least in the cities I researched in the U.S., that's how it's structured. Like the t- increased tax that's on it goes towards supposedly go towards social programs that help with like obesity and weight loss stuff. Which is awesome because it's a problem that's now solving itself and is not solving itself, but it's helping itself get better. Yeah. And I think cigarettes, it's the same way. Like that increased money goes towards like smoking cessation stuff. And actually, yeah, no, it's pretty much for I think it also goes towards like smoking cessation things. Cigarettes fun is because like the cigarette companies had like a huge lawsuit also around them. And so there was also there's just so much weird economic stuff when it comes to cigarettes. Money. Money <laughs> drives everything. But yeah, so that was Cameron's tax corner. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> and that's good because there's really just a huge debate on if soda taxes work. And so <laughs> I figured you would have a lot of insight on this because Aside from the fact of, like, should you do a soda tax? Like, oh, no, this is inhibiting my freedom. Like, let's – putting that argument aside, mainly just, like, do soda taxes actually, you know, per, like, curtail buying soda? Like, mm-hmm. is that effective? And there's been some evidence that they decrease soda consumption. I'll read a couple of them. So Berkeley, California, they saw a 52 percent decline in soda consumption in the first three years after their tax was implemented. Philadelphia, they saw drink sales drop by 46 percent after their soda tax was implemented. But in their case, they also saw an increase in soda sales in the areas just outside of Philly. So they figured that then just kind of switched it so people were traveling outside the city to buy their soda instead of buying it in the city. So it's kind of like how much effect did it have? Well, I'll say these two things. First off, I don't actually think it matters whether or not it's effective in directly curtailing because now you have a revenue flow that you're using to ideally support social programs that are themselves trying to curtail it. So maybe taxing people on soda Mm. itself isn't helping it. But now that you have these programs that teach people you can drink stuff other than soda or gives opportunities to put healthier options in places where normally people could only access soda because it's shelf stable whereas milk isn't or something like that suddenly there's more opportunity for alternatives. The other thing, and you beautifully brought it up with the Philly example, the problem with taxes is they only really work if you apply them uniformly. Like Mm, two obvious problems are one, if I tax one specific area, is it going to burden people there? Like there's lots of historic examples of governments taxing specific populations by choosing to tax specific areas that just happen to be higher in a certain type of person than other places. The other problem is now you're also creating a perverse market where people are buying and selling goods in areas that have a lower tax rate because they can and there's a higher economic incentive to do business outside of where you normally would, which in turn also affects the economy of the places with a higher tax rate. Yeah, I feel like this kind of is related to like how alcohol sales are done in the U.S. Like every state has their own different rules on how alcohol is sold. So it's just always kind of really weird of like what are the rules in each state and in each area? Like I know some states have dry counties and it's like where no alcohol is sold here. It's like, well, you could just drive over to the next county and buy all your alcohol there. (laughs) Like what is this really doing? Yeah, and 
to be clear, the point here is it is determined to be a public good to curtail the sale of alcohol in certain places or to make it more expensive. But in general, the point is it's only really good when you can apply it uniformly so people can't find these silly loopholes. Mm -hmm. And then also just kind of wanted to bring up that soda companies obviously do not like soda taxes. Oh, like the cigarette companies don't like cigarette taxes? <laughs> or the gasoline companies don't like carbon taxes? Yeah, go figure. And so, like, they've been, you know, lobbying against these taxes pretty much in areas. And they've actually been successful in some states, like, of preventing soda taxes from becoming a thing. And then, I mean, the beverage industry themselves, like, I know Coca-Cola specifically, they've worked with scientists to kind of downplay the impact sugar has on obesity I will link an article to it. It's very interesting of how they've like purposely were using scientists and other research just to kind of downplay the effects of sugar. The beverage industry, they they spend a lot of money marketing to children and especially black and Hispanic children. Like they the research has shown they've been exposed to more of these ads than their white counterparts. So like they know what they're doing. I'm really sad now. That made me sad. Please tell me there's something we can do about it. Is there is there anything we can do? Go. Yeah. When it comes to soda companies lobbying against them, I don't know. Like, what can you do to corporations, really? But when it comes to just obesity in general and the obesity epidemic, there's there's obviously things you can do to prevent it. Usually the focus is on having more availability to healthy foods, making healthy food choices, eating fresh fruits and vegetables, also increasing the amount of exercise and physical activity because that'll help, you know, sustain your current weight that can, you know, help burn calories. All those stuffs are, you know, good methods. But as Cameron was kind of pointing me in the direction of, because I mentioned this to him, when I was researching this story, I actually ran across another theory on really how the obesity epidemic can be stopped and curtailed. And I thought it was really fascinating. So I thought I'd bring it up. So this theory that I want to talk about, a research theory, by the way, it's called the homeostatic theory of obesity. And the basic idea is that a person's health is regulated by homeostasis and feedback loops. And that when your health is an imbalance, it can create what they deemed a circle of discontent, which is where like negative thoughts and aspects are going on these feedback loops. So from this theory then comes this like forearm strategy to stopping a rise in obesity rates. And let me just read those off real quick. First one, putting a stop to victim blaming, stigma and discrimination. Two, devalorizing the thin ideal. Three, reducing consumption of energy-dense, low-nutrient food and drinks. And four, improving access to plant-based diets. So, first of all, I like the points about rehabilitating the idea of what is healthy versus what is thin. Mm -hmm. Because this is going to surprise some people. It's racist. <laughs> it's a racism. They did a racism. Because... <laughs> Oh, no, racism occurred again. Quick history lesson, and I feel like I got to dig up some sources on this. As you know, people were being freed in the Americas. White people especially were trying to figure out, well, how do we prove that we're better than these people over here? And one of the ways they did this was an image. They were saying, oh, well, thinner people are obviously more civilized because we can control our weight and we can control our eating habits. Even though if you look at like any famous rich dude, 
from like the turn of the century when all these ideas are coming about, they're pretty portly gentlemen. Pretty, they're pretty round. They're defined as being a ball with arms. So it's a little ironic to see that this idea that the ideal human is thin and the ideal thinness can be achieved by the white man but not by other cultures is a weird holdover idea that continues to permeate pop culture. And this is not to say like obesity is necessarily good. It's just to say this overly idealized idea that being super thin and having like no fat whatsoever is not realistic and came from a very racially driven place. Yeah. And back in history, it was actually normally the bigger you were, like the larger you were as a person, it showed your wealth because you had access to food and excess food in order to get that way. So it was kind of seen as like a, oh, look how rich I am. I'm able to be fatter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But obviously that then changed over time. That perception changed. And so now we're at a point where it's really interesting that in this theory, the first two points are kind of on changing your mindset and changing a culture mindset because now it's like – there's this overemphasis on the perfect body type is kind of like how like a supermodel looks in a way like, you know, kind of thin, skinny, you know, as you said, zero fat content like that seems to be the perfect body type. And that's ignoring different, you know, cultures and different like people's body types. Like not everyone can be thin and tall, obviously. I'm a pretty short person. And so I'm a little more rounder <laughs> than that. And some people just have, you know, wider hips and they accumulate fat differently or they're very broad shouldered and they're like bone density is different. So it's just like trying to put everyone in this kind of box of what everyone's body type should look like on an outward appearance is really insane. It's also just the fact of like people from the same area, people from the same genetic background can have this difference. Mm -hmm. But something else I want to bring up about this specific idea is there's also an element here of how the psychology plays into it that I really want to examine because there's this problem which is if I think that I am fat and I can't do anything about it, it will cause me to not feel in an ideal mental state that facilitates weight loss. Like you'd mm -hmm. be amazed how much of your own health and physiology is driven by your mental state. And if you're constantly stressed, constantly upset, constantly trying to pine for something that is not even realistic for your body type, it actually makes it harder for you to even maintain weight. Yeah. Like it's weird to think of stress is kind of like a precursor to obesity, like stress can negatively affect your weight. And then also obesity has been linked to depression, like a higher rates of it. So then it's also just this cycle of, oh, I'm really stressed and thinking about this. And so my body is not going to handle that well because your body does not work well under stress. That's just how it is. And then, oh, no, I'm now depressed over this and I'm having these negative like mental impacts because of my stress. So it's just like this vicious cycle that you have to break somehow. Yeah. And I, if you want to do a weird tangent into evolutionary biology, this kind of gets back to fight or flight instincts. Mm -hmm. Like these ideas that typically in our history, we didn't have to worry about things like looking like a supermodel or whatever. We mostly just had to worry about the physical world around us. We didn't have all these psychological elements piled on necessarily. And so We've developed a way to respond to our environment that's more focused on physical stimuli, like being able to outrun a predator or react to a situation where we might literally have to fight or run. And that same mechanism is being used to govern emotional behavior that has to do with 
will I be able to attain this physical ideal? Or will I be able to attain a status or something in life that as a result, it causes us to feel the same stress responses without having a way to resolve them in terms of physical real world stimuli? I think there's also just an important time to bring up is that over the course of human history, our diets and how we get physical activity, all of that has changed dramatically. Dramatically in the last hundred years. Yeah. Not like over thousands of years, like previous changes. Like, I mean, really the rise of industrialization, the rise of like food preservation and the ability to have junk food, all of that, the changing of how your diet is now, and also the rise in office jobs and the rise in most people having jobs where they're not like under these intense physical demands and such like that. It's just it's just such a different way that humans are now having to deal with their diet and how they get physical activity. And so it just makes sense that because of that, there's just a different way to look at obesity. And that's why obesity is on the rise. But there's things you can obviously do with that. And that's why the next two steps are like having access to healthy foods, having access to these foods that, you know, aren't junk foods that are healthier and having more plant based diet, making sure that you increase your vegetable intake and stuff like that. Like that's all very good for our diets an important thing. And I guess my last point I want to bring up in this episode is just like sometimes in the public health world, and I'm a public health practitioner, so like it's just kind of difficult talking about obesity because like I find this issue with doctors before. It's like – and you can go into a whole thing on BMI, like the body mass index, is that you have these guidelines out there and people think – that these guidelines are very strict and if you don't fit into this box, then something's wrong and something's wrong with you. And sometimes that translates where you go to a doctor's visit and they go, oh, you're not in this BMI range. You're this. You need to do something about that. And BMI, which I feel like I should point out, is completely based on white biology. It is. Yeah. There's troublesome aspects to that index. But the point that I want to make is that there needs to be like a separation between talking about obesity and how much of an issue it is and talking about a rise in obesity rates. And then that needs to not be translated then to like fat shaming and really putting people down. All right. This is it's not anything like that. Like, no, you shouldn't as a person be around judging how people look. That's just Mm -hmm. a fact. And so people who are larger and on an outward to some person, maybe you think, oh, this person is larger or whatever. They should not be treated any different than anyone else. It's just that's just how it is. Yeah. And that's I mean, it's also just important regardless, because a lot of people who are overweight want to lose weight and they will engage in activities where they'll go to the gym or they'll do any number of activities that you would associate with losing weight, but they still feel shamed for being overweight in that setting. When typically you think of someone going to the gym as being fit, that can actually have a negative impact on their ability to maintain and lose weight. Yeah. And not to mention just like some people are a certain body shape because they have other health conditions. So maybe they are a little have a bit more weight on them because, you know, they have joint issues and can't work out or they have certain diet issues like and all this other stuff or other things going on. And not to mention the reverse of that. A lot of cancer patients have a really hard time maintaining weight because of all the treatment that they're having to undergo and stuff like that. And so 
in that aspect, you really just you should never judge someone's appearance because you don't know what's going on there. You've that aspect. You've the aspect of some people, their body shape is just a certain way. Like you may look at them and think, oh, they're this way, that way in your mind. Oh, they're too thin. Oh, they're not thin enough. Like, but that really that may be their perfect body composition right there. And they are doing everything right. And that's just how they look. So I think the whole big thing is that don't judge people. All right. I feel like you have opinions about this. Yeah. Okay. I think I have opinions about this is because I, it's weird to say I like talking about obesity. I've done a lot of work trying to like lower obesity rates and trying to promote healthy foods and eating better and having a better diet. And I think sometimes there's just a pushback in society on that because of people thinking, oh, no, 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 you can't talk about anything because it's fat shaming. And so you really just need to dissociate that. There's a difference between talking about getting your diet healthier and talking about, you know, an individual's experience with trying to do things and trying to have a healthy life and also just not judge people. Yeah, I think the last thing I wanted to bring up just in relation to this is I appreciate that the four-prong plan doesn't put a heavy emphasis on exercise Mm -hmm. in terms of loss of weight because the thing is for some reason in Western culture, we've determined that if you exercise a lot, you should be shredded and super thin and super muscular and have like that perfect body. But at the end of the day, six-packs start in the kitchen, not the gym. (laughs) I love that expression just because – Everything about how your body maintains, gains, and loses weights, it comes down to a surprisingly simple equation. Calories in versus calories out. Your body burns X number of calories a day. You eat that much, you should be maintaining weight. You eat more than that, you'll be gaining weight. You eat less than that, you'll be losing weight. Mm -hmm. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't be allowed to eat things, but to acknowledge that bringing it full circle back to junk food, it's food that is so much more calorically dense than food we're used to seeing before. Like humans in history are not used to something this calorically dense outside of certain protein and fat options. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can suddenly have a ton of calorically dense food around means that it's a lot easier to unintentionally eat more calories, which makes it easier for you to gain weight. And expecting people to burn a thousand calories extra a day when all they needed to do was not eat as many snacks or be able to replace that specific snack with something healthier is unfair because it's something they can learn to do if you let them know that's the problem instead of shaming someone into thinking they need to run a 10k every day yeah and i think that's just the perfect full circle conclusion of how like yeah these public health initiatives of trying to curtail the sale of junk food or trying to put these extra restrictions on the sale of soda like Really, the whole purpose for this is just trying to promote healthier food options and trying to make those available because we just have such a high availability of junk food that tastes delicious and is great in moderation. I think that's the key word there. Now, Sam, we've been in here for a while and you dropped a lot of incredible facts on me. And I need you to quickly tell me where I could find, subscribe, (laughs) share this content with my friends if they would be interested in learning more about everything we talked about. Maybe even looking at the sources for this excellent, excellent podcast. Where could we where could we find such things? All right. Let me let me try this. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to it at Sample Size, wherever you get your podcast. And also we're on social media at Sample Size Show. 
go find us. Go share us. Share us to your friends. Share us to everyone who wants to learn about obesity and obesity rates and, you know, sale of junk food and stuff. But what if I want to listen to, read, write, watch those sources that made this episode possible? Oh, I'm getting there. And all of my sources are in the show notes. Why are you pointing down? I can't see anything. They're this is a, down, not a visual medium. They're down on that where you get your podcast. You scroll down. That's the show notes. All right. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to you, Scott. <laughs> Big shout out to Scott Stronick, the mastermind who's been able to edit these episodes and keep us on track with the incredible backlog of content Sam's been throwing at me. <laughs> you can find links to Scott's stuff in the show notes. Till next time. See ya. 